The Cozy Robot Show. I don't know why there was no music on the thing. <laughs> the thing. Hey, Cozy Robots. I'm Mike McCarg. I'm Victory Palmasano. And I'm Grace Vaughn. And we are coming in by the seat of our pants on the show tonight. We've had some technical problems right before we went live. Poor Victory is displaced. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I'm coming to you live from the bedroom of a four-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> so different light, different sound, different environment, different everything. Different yes. password to our streaming site. <laughs> I almost single-handedly ruined the entire show 15 minutes ago, but somehow we made it here. I am techno- technologically challenged people. So like, how much do we like, care about empathetic skepticism <laughs> and learning about our feelings and critical thinking? We will do stop at nothing to make sure this show happens, <laughs> uh, even if it's at the nick of time. So thank you all for being here. Uh as we do every week, we're going to talk about our feelings. We're going to learn new things. We're going to answer your questions. So we're live right now on YouTube and Facebook and uh, Periscope on Twitter and uh, also Twitch. And you can uh, <laughs> drop comments and we can see them. So if you have questions or comments or anything you'd like to share, we can see that. We, we, we like this show to be interactive. Of course, it does also come out later in the week on Wednesdays as a replay on Instagram TV and on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And we are so glad that you're here with us on this Monday night as we record live or later in the week if you're uh, a part of the replay. And the Cousin Robot Show has gone through an alarming number of format changes for a relatively young program <laughs> as we try to figure out what we're doing and why. And one of the things we figured out is uh, I'm not particularly comfortable on camera alone. And so uh, we kept telling you every week that the Cozy Robot Show was this show that was brought to you by a team of people. And, and then it was just me on camera all the time. <laughs> And so we've invited other people that help make this show happen every week to be in front of camera and be a part of the production. And we kind of did that with no context or introductions. So Grace and Victory <laughs> just showed up. And I love, I love, up. I love that we've gotten questions <laughs> from people in the audience about like, wow, I'm really excited about these new people. And who are they? So we're going to take some time in the beginning of these next two weeks uh, to let you know a little bit more about Grace and Victory. And this week, we're going to start with Grace. Uh, we're talking to our amazing social media manager, Grace Vaughn. Wow. Grace Vaughn has an incredible experience crafting social media personas, personalities, and content. In addition to that, she is a recording artist releasing theater-style music on platforms like Apple Music and Spotify, in case you didn't know. And in addition to that, uh, has one of the most compelling and entertaining TikTok talks I've <laughs> ever seen. Don't forget to smile. Oh, not supposed to read that part of the teleprompter. <laughs> so, um... Mike, and it was so good. You were smiling the whole time. I, yeah, and I listened to you. I was like, <laughs> just smile is the name of this episode, by the way. That is what is. I will be naming yeah. it. But yeah, and, and so me on camera, <laughs> artificially animating my face in a way I don't do when I podcast. Either way, uh, this is not about me and my facial expressions, Grace. This is about you. Oh, my gosh. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and... and uh, 
how you got into music in the first place. Oh my gosh. Well, I'll make it quick so we can get to those questions, but um, I am a 24-year-old musical theater songwriter as well as a social media manager. And I, gosh, when I was in college, I went to school for theater and acting, particularly acting specifically. And uh, at the end of my four years in college, we had a project to do. We had to do something in this project for our senior thesis, something we hadn't learned in four years, which seemed counterintuitive to, you know, what we had spent <laughs> so much time and money on. But um, anyway, this project was to be something that I had never done before. And I love musicals. And I had never once gotten the chance to, because my track was on acting, specifically acting, I had been in plays, but I hadn't been able to try my hand at musical theater. Mm -hmm. And one day I sat down at the piano because I have a little bit of piano ex ex I almost said expertise. That's ridiculous. I have a little bit of, that really sounds like I have just a little bit of piano expertise. <laughs> I, I know a little bit of piano. I know a little bit of ukulele and guitar. And I sat down and I wrote a song that I thought was funny. I showed it to my classmates. They thought it was funny. And ever since then, I've been writing musical theater songs. So that's kind of my, my story. When I'm not doing social media management for the Cozy Robot Show, I am writing musical theater music for my, my friends to sing. Hmm. So that's what I do. Of all the things you could do with your professional time, <laughs> you signed up with this band the of... The Cozy Crew. Folks, the Cozy Crew. By the, the way, crew. this morning, I, I just want to say, I put in our uh, group chat at work, I put in hashtag Cozy Crew. Mm. So people, if you're people commenting right now, let me know. Is that something you would want to see on merch, for instance? Hashtag Cozy Crew, get it trending. Um, but I, uh, I uh, yeah, but yeah, I am so, well, actually, it's kind of, it's funny, Mike, because I was a fan of yours before I got onto the Cozy Robot show. Uh, I had lost my job at this restaurant in town because of COVID. Oh. And I was looking online uh, to try my hand at social media management. I had been doing social media management in town for small businesses. And then the Cozy Robot Show was looking for a social media manager. And I thought to myself, I know Mike McHarg. He seems really <laughs> nice. And I got to know the wonderful Victory, the wonderful Tanner, everybody on the team. And it's just been really nice. Truly. We do have a lot of fun. And we, we are really glad you're here, both doing social media and on the program, as it is uh, over 1 million percent less boring, according <laughs> to a study I did based on my own subjective experience with the show. So, <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, I love being on here, and I love being on here with uh, Victory as well. I know that this is... This isn't the episode, the victory episode. That's to come. So everybody tune in for that. Yeah, tune but, uh, Victory is coming from an evacuation situation. <laughs> I love the rhyme. <laughs> yeah, it feels like a song. An evacuation it situation. It feels like a song about something different. Situation. Evacuation yeah, it does. situation. <laughs> It sounds like I had a bad lunch or something. <laughs> 
Yeah, um, uh, you're right. <laughs> I am. I've been evacuated. We've been evacuated from our home because we had toxic mold. Really and bad. So we, yeah, we're on week three of waiting for the mold to be removed and fogged and tested, and hopefully we'll be back. By next Monday, you'll see me back in front of my China hutch once again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mold oh my free. Gosh. So now you know yeah. last week when I said Victory wasn't feeling well, you know why? She was uh, yes. breathing mold. Ugh. Mold sickness was no mold fun. Sickness. I do not recommend it. Um, Grace, uh, is it too much to ask for like two lines of some vocal stylings from your senior thesis song? Yeah, it was called um, Death Isn't Sexy. And you just sing like a line or two? Yeah, yeah, I can. Okay, Okay, wait, I got to think for a second. Um, Oh, shoot, am I going to forget it? Here's me playing the proverbial harmonica. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Letting me know. Um, well, I can tell you what it was about because I'm I'm going blank on the lyrics right now. But it was about. <laughs> no pressure. It was about. It was about a yeah, just a live show, just a live show <laughs> with live commentary. As I can't remember the lyrics to a song that I definitely wrote. Um, it was about a girl who, when she touches things, she can see when people die. And so she doesn't, it already sounds very weird, but because it is, is. but um, she, she can see when people are going to die. And so she doesn't get asked to prom because death isn't sexy. Every time she like (laughs) hugs a dude, she's like, oh my God, you're gonna, she has this like vision (laughs) and they're like, oh my God, get away from me. And so death isn't sexy. That's how it goes. (laughs) There's more to it but i'll have to if you guys are at all interested you can stalk me on social media you will find it it is online so so well, that's one named amy hill asked oh, hey amy. grace can you sing a line from your new song oh my gosh this is really becoming the grace episode and people are here for questions Just one little line then we'll i will questions okay sing us into the questions okay i'll sing you into the questions Okay, so the new song is um, is called I'm a Friendly Werewolf. And uh, it, as the song sounds, it is about a werewolf who is friendly. And, oh, who, who tries to convince you he's friendly, but he's not really. Oh, um, spoiler alert. Yeah, sorry about that. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> but basically, basically, this uh, the werewolf goes... Um, uh, Okay, he starts out by singing. Uh, my mind is drawing a blank because I'm live. Um, your music brain does not like your live stream. My brain. music brain does not like my live it's stream brain. It's just a little scotch of stage fright. We just need a center. Yeah, I got a center. Okay, here it goes. I'll. Thought it would be cloudy, but Miss Moon is shining bright. I've escaped my human body, yeah, but only for tonight. So please come be my chew toy. Yeah, this puppy's <laughs> off his leash. Let's play a game of make-believe. You be beauty, I'll be beast. It's kind of oh sexy. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> and it does sound so musical. 
Like Thank as you. In, like as in musical theater. <laughs> Thank God. It really does sound It like... weirdly sounds musical. <laughs> I, you know, that you sounded like song. It sounds like when you did the Broadway show thing. It's very Broadway. There's a thing. There's like a whole thing. Yeah, there's like a very like, it's very... you articulate all your words and it's very big. You're singing to grandma on the back row. Um, yeah. Mike, Did I ever tell you what, ha- what, what happened to me with, with musicals at Broadway? I always thought I hated them. And then Hamilton came out and I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. This is so good. This is not pop tickets to like different musicals. <laughs> and then I'd go see musicals and I'd be like, where's the hip hop? <laughs> <laughs> all right you know? so that's what you that's what you you like the hip-hop i mean i love hamilton and then i went to see um wicked in london Dang. and i was like i, I don't really hear a beat anywhere and I <laughs> it. you wanted to get down you wanted to be like all right yeah. okay right, right. so and, that, and i kind of said that yeah. people were like yeah you kind of came in like so you, you I've never heard instrumental classical before, but this Beethoven's pretty good. Right, right. <laughs> that is hysterical. I'm thinking about Amadeus now. That's very funny. Um, speaking of, oh, how am I going to do this transition? I really was about to speaking say speaking Amadeus. of Amadeus. I was going to say, speaking of things that aren't very funny... And then I was going to go into questions, but it's not that they're scary. <laughs> it's not that they're very serious. They're just questions. Death isn't Good sexy. Death God. isn't sexy. Death isn't sexy. Death isn't sexy. Um, okay, so, Mike, here's your first question of the night. From Instagram, mm-hmm. WYH Music at WYH Music asks, I have a young ukulele student with autism. Any advice as to how I can teach her better? Oh my gosh. The, a funny thing happened to me, Grace. Uh, I went my whole life and didn't know I had autism. And in fact, this would happen. I would be doing live events where I would answer questions. And people would raise their hand and I'd call them and they'd say, So, I have autism and I have a complicated relationship with my feelings. And I'm wondering how you, as an adult with autism, navigate your relationship to your feelings. I'd be like, oh, wow, that, that is such a kind question. I appreciate the inclusion. I don't actually have autism, and so I could not speak into that. Mm. <laughs> That'd be the end of the question. <clears throat> well, then I got diagnosed <laughs> with, autism. with autism spectrum disorder. And now people all the time ask me questions like these about how do we accommodate um autism and education and society and all these things. And, um, you know, I, I kind of publicly said I have autism as a matter of solidarity. But I just want to be really clear that my, like, recent knowledge that I have autism spectrum disorder, that I am an autistic person, um, I still view myself in a lot of ways as, like, behind the ball and an outsider, because when I was in grade school, nobody thought I had autism. People thought I was slow. Um, and I had a lot of bad experiences in the education system. And I've done a lot of masking. I've become more and more aware uh, since I found out that I have autism that a lot of my personality, the way I interact with people, doesn't come naturally to me at all. And I think we could, we'd all say that on some level. But there's things that are really hard for me that are normal and expected 
in everyday conversation and situations and encounters, right? Uh, people feel a sense of trust generally when you make eye contact with them. Eye contact is excruciatingly difficult for me. So I tend to look at people's lower eyelids instead of into their mm. eyes as like a little hack. But then I basically have to continuously tell myself, look at their lower eyelid to not do what comes naturally to me when I really listen to someone, which is do this. But like most people would read this as like, I'm disinterested. This is my deepest and most profound listening posture because... Yeah. My eyes are too noisy. I can't really pay attention if I'm seeing people with my eyes. I have to look at a desk or an object or a piece of jewelry or something inanimate to hear people talk. It is an incredible, I'm mask making this show. It doesn't, I love podcasting because when I podcast, I can like look at right here on the microphone and talk. And even as I do this, it's so much easier <laughs> and so much more comfortable than looking at a camera and a teleprompter and sensory information, because I have autism, sensory information is overwhelming to me, just wildly overwhelming and confusing. So I get nonverbal cues, but I get them like sporadically, and some of them are, are too loud, and some of them are not loud enough compared to what I understand a neurotypical person experience to be in interaction. <sighs> That doesn't qualify me to answer questions about how to educate children other than to say in my experience as an autistic person, the less we are required to mask, the more we can be present and learn and interact. So understand that if you are teaching a musical instrument to an autistic child, that child has had some expectation in their family system and or society that they mask behaviors, and that's taking a lot of their emotional and cognitive resources every moment. And that's taking away the attention they can actually spend in the lesson. And so the more you can emphasize to an autistic or any neurodivergent person that in this particular space, they're actually invited to relax and just be themselves, the more you can offer kind of a non-judgmental and supportive way of interacting interpersonally, you might find little things start showing up, little uh, stimming, little movements autistic people make to comfort themselves, little um, changes in interactions and volume and eye line. You know, I keep even now looking away to find my words. And when your student is allowed to do that, well, they might find they have more bandwidth to focus on how the instrument is held and, and how it sounds and the mechanics. And frankly, um, Fine motor control uh, can uh, be challenging for people with autism spectrum disorder. When I learned to play bass guitar, uh, I really hurt myself because I pressed the strings way, 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 way too hard when I played. When I was training myself to do uh, close-up magic, I kept ruining deck of cards because I didn't realize like you're not supposed to mash the cards so hard to do the tricks. And anything that's like a light touch just doesn't come naturally to me or a lot of autistic people. And I think just kind of be aware of those little limiting factors and be patient and understand neurodivergent people. A lot of times we learn really slowly and then make rapid progress and plateau again mm. <laughs> and then rapid progress and then plateau again in a way that might not be uh, normal or typical and makes us feel frustrated because 
often our experience is we're, we're either wildly behind everyone else or it seems that something that's challenging to everyone else comes to us with absolutely no effort uh, that's perceivable on our part. So just be aware of those things and make space for it, I guess. And please take my caveats that this is all new to me very seriously. And um, if you'd like more, you know, uh, there's lots of people who talk about their experiences with autism on social media. Go find those people out. There's a hashtag actually autistic and center people who actually have autism in these conversations over non-autistic people who position themselves as advocates or experts. Amazing. I, it's funny okay. that this question came in because my mom is a speech therapist. She works with a lot of, uh, what is the term? Neurodivergent? Neuro... Mm -hmm. Neurotypical okay. and neurodivergent. Okay. Uh, yeah, neurodivergent uh, children and actually is on the forefront many times of saying, I am going to recommend this child for testing to see if they are autistic. And she's been asking me over and over again, can you talk to Mike about what, how we can talk to parents? This is a different question entirely, but how we can talk to parents about how, how to break the news that their child is autistic without mm. it being, without this being like an upsetting moment for them because there are so many misconceptions such a core part of what I view like empathetic skepticism, the empathy part mm -hmm. is destigmatization. Yeah. You know, a lot of the things that become emotionally loaded um, in identity are so simply because we create such overwhelming conformity pressure in our society. And the more we accommodate that people are different, the less stigma there is about that. I feel exactly 0.0% shame that I am autistic. Uh, and I, I typically prefer to say I'm autistic instead of saying I'm an autistic person. Mm. Uh, although both are fine with me. Uh, I am fat. And I say, when I say I'm fat, I don't, I'm not bashing myself. That's just a label of that accurately describes my physiology. There's only a reason to feel shame about the word fat is if you've got some hangups about fatness, some anti-fatness, right? Like mm -hmm. even when we talk about matters of race, some people are like afraid to say the word black, like it's a bad word, which is like anti-blackness right. embodied. Like, like black right. is a great word mm -hmm. because black is a great thing to be, as is autistic, or fat, like would, as we destigmatize these things that are different from our social expectation of conformity, these conversations get easier to have. And I have often found that unless I am talking about COVID vaccination, I can talk about topics that are usually activating for people in a way that doesn't activate them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because in the way I interact on an ongoing basis, not just in the moment, but all the time, I am accommodating and non-judgmental in my posture around matters of identity. And the more we do that, and the more people kind of subconsciously and, and psychologically become aware of that, the less activated they are when we, when we, when we speak of matters of identity. Um, and, and so essentially what I'm hearing in, in your comment, Grace, is we have a big moon landing scale project, maybe even bigger, that is confronting the structural 
ableism of our society that makes us assume right. that being diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder is something that's activating in the first place as simply opposed to just a way we're different than other people. But not, you know, there's a lot of autistic people and we're we're rather fun. We're great to be around. And <laughs> I'll say <laughs> you're a blast. I know, and I, I, do, I think I am in my own way. Like you know, and um, you know, and that's that's the other reason I started publicly talking about autism personally is so people would be like, well, oh, okay, well, he's like an author, podcaster, like whatever. It doesn't seem to be that big a deal, and it's not. The, right. Uh, you know, Stephanie Tate, my friend, talks about the social model of disability. She didn't come up with that, but she's definitely the person I heard it from. And this notion that the reason disability becomes difficult in society is not because of the differing levels of ability or disability people have, but because of society's response to it. And I think that's a really, really powerful understanding that I appreciate. I think in the future, maybe we'll have an episode all about autism and neurodivergence. Um, but for tonight, it is almost time for the ads to keep okay. the lights on. I, I right. guess we go right into that. All right. Well, let's do some ads. Be right all back. Right. See you after the break. Well, the Cozy Robot Show would not be possible without our wonderful sponsors. So let me tell you about two of them tonight. First of all is BetterHelp. These days, mental health is a real challenge. We've either been working because we're essential and having anxiety about the safety of the world, or we've been isolating in our homes alone in a way that feels like a lot. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to see people. And lucky for me, I get to see a therapist each and every week safely because I talk to my therapist on BetterHelp. Me and over a million other people are taking charge of their mental health with the easiest and most convenient way to get mental health support that I know of. When you sign up for BetterHelp, you get access to a licensed professional counselor. And they've got all kinds of counselors who specialize in different issues that we face in our lives. Things like stress and anxiety, depression, sleeping, trauma, relationships, anger management issues, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem, and LGBTQ matters. BetterHelp is perfectly adapted for this era of social distancing because you interact with your therapist via text, chat, call, or video. I love that BetterHelp finds your therapist for you after you fill out a questionnaire to help them understand the challenges that you're facing. So why not get started today? You can visit betterhelp.com slash cozy robots and get 10% off your first month's service. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash cozy robots. Our second sponsor this week is NordVPN. Um, I have a security background. I did IT security for a long time. And let me tell you, the internet is a place where people want your stuff. And a VPN provides an additional layer of protection by encrypting the traffic from your device to your VPN provider. So that means if you're on a public hotspot or maybe a, uh, an apartment Wi-Fi, you can be confident that people aren't intercepting what you're sharing as part of the Wi-Fi connection. NordVPN's a great service. They've got super fast servers, over 5,000 in 59 different countries. They also can let you mask where you are in the world, which can unlock Netflix and other entertainment websites that are restricted by geographic location. Uh, they offer a 
connection acceleration with their technology Nord links that can actually make your internet work more quickly. Uh, and they do no data logging as a means of protecting your privacy. NordVPN is wonderful because it's compatible with most devices and operating systems, including Windows, Mac OS, Linux, iOS, and Android. And they have unlimited bandwidth, so you don't have to worry about how much bandwidth you're using as you watch videos or share files, because NordVPN has you covered. So, for NordVPN's birthday, every purchase of a two-year plan will get you an additional month free and a surprise gift. Wow, that's cool. So you can find out more by going to nordvpn.com slash cozy robots and use the code cozy robots. Mike, I'm going to come swinging hard. Babe Ruth can't okay. hit it out of the park like this question. At Meadow in the Wild Nine on Instagram asks, are there scenarios where it is ethical to lie? You know, I've re- I've heard a lot of ethicists say no, and I disagree. Um, because lying has done a lot of good in our world. Um, anyone who was involved with uh helping Jewish people make it out of Germany during the Holocaust. Well, they would lie about who was in their home today. Same thing with the Underground Railroad helping slaves escape the South and slavery to the North where they could be free. And those situations inevitably involved lying. Lying to people who were what? Corrupt and unjust and threatening other people's lives. So, the fact that I can think of that exception so quickly <clears throat> and so readily makes me think, yeah, there's certainly situations where it's okay to lie. And I also make every effort to be truthful um, as much as I possibly can in life. I don't run into circumstances where I think it would be ethical for me to lie very often. Um, you know, um, in my interpersonal relationships, in my business, in my life, truth is simply an easier policy. I don't have to keep track of who I told what if I just tell the truth. Um, so I think in general, certainly it's more ethical to be honest. I think a lot of times we lie to avoid difficult conversations and situations. And although that's understandable, I think that causes us more difficulty than relief. Uh, hard, on, hard conversations typically don't age particularly well. Uh, I've been learning for years now to um, take the time I need to de-escalate to get to the point where I can communicate with hostility and wait absolutely no longer than that to have difficult conversations to avoid those situations where a polite lie seems easier. So I think the kind of convenience lies we tell are very seldom justifiable. But absolutely, there's times that lying, if you're lying to save a person's life from a violent system or a violent person, gosh, I think lying is great. Uh, I thought that that would be a hard question. And then you brought up all those things. And I went, oh, (laughs) Uh, yeah, you should lie sometimes if there are people's (laughs) lives at stake. 
I really was sitting over here going like, man, I don't know how he's going to do this one. And it was like uh, the Underground Railroad. And I was like, oh, right. (laughs) Oh, that, that huge, huge thing. Um, Yeah. All right, Mike. uh, Great job with that question. (laughs) Hit out the park. Um, Ross on the Cozy Robot show Private Discord. Oh, well, hello. Oh, asks... This is one I'm curious about. Recently, I've seen a rise in body language experts making ripples online who analyze mm-hmm. footage of celebrities or convicted criminals trying to determine whether they're being truthful or not. They're entertaining videos to watch, but in my gut, I'm always wondering whether this is at all scientific or whether it's junk. So is there anything of value in body language expertise? What a great question. I mean... I shouldn't be surprised. I know Ross, and Ross is a thoughtful and delightful person, as I frankly know uh, most of the people who are part of our Cozy Robot community on Discord. So I'm excited to hear hear questions coming in from there. Um, This is such a mixed question. Is there value in body language expertise? Absolutely. Most communication that happens between Humans is nonverbal. It involves our facial expressions and our body movements, our body postures. And uh, when we, we kind of talk about forensic body language analysis, that's less useful. So body language expertise, I think, is very, very useful when we're talking about psychology. When we're talking about looking for cues that another person has when we're trying to communicate with them, understanding when someone might feel safe or less safe. Understanding, you know, when someone's engaged versus not engaged with us. Uh, but, you know, I read once um, that I believe this was a quote from a forensic body language expert who quoted a study that said when uh, body language experts have been scientifically analyzed, they are about 60% accurate. So l- better than chance, certainly, but not... Um, certainly not accurate enough to like convict someone, I would say even in the court of public opinion. So when we watch these videos and we're saying, you know, you can tell for sure if someone's lying or not because they do blank or blank or blank, none of our body language and facial expressions happen in a microcosm. There's a there's an ocean of data coming from a person's nonverbal communication cues. And when you focus in on one aspect of that, you might be missing other parts of the interaction that will lead you to a false conclusion. The fact is our intuitive brains are much better at analyzing body language than our conscious brains are. Uh, I could think of examples. Um, You know, you'll hear that if someone crosses their arms, they're being defensive or aren't engaged, right? Uh, Because you cross your arms and you cover your vital organs. Or if you cross your legs in conversation, right? That's another sign that someone might be defensive, which can be true. Or it can also be true that if you're someone like me that pretty frequently experiences pain while sitting, I can cross my arms and relieve shoulder pain, right? So if, if we talk a long time, I promise you, at some point I cross my arms, it's because we've been talking long enough, my arms have been still for so long, they're starting to go numb and I'm trying to wake them up. Same thing, I experienced pain while sitting. I almost exclusively cross my legs as pain management. So 
that's the caveat I would want to bring in. We're talking about body language expertise. There can be multiple motiva- motivations for any action, and you have to really look at the totality of a person's physiology to get context that's helpful. So is body language expertise valuable? Absolutely. When we're talking about how to facilitate better interpersonal communication, when used for forensic analysis for truthfulness or not truthfulness or motivation or intent, uh, according to the studies I've heard referenced, about 60% accurate, which is one massive grain of statistically significant salt. Statistically significant salt is also yeah. in the running for the title of the episode. <laughs> it could also be the name of a band we start. <laughs> Just I'll some ideas. Oh, perfect. I'll play the salt shaker. <laughs> Marjorie IKC on Instagram asks, my estranged mom reached out. How do I know if I'm ready to connect? Hmm. Hmm. I'd pay attention to that. You're asking that question. Family system stuff is hard. Really, truly challenging and difficult. I'd just say, um, remember you don't owe anyone connection, including family members. You don't owe anyone your time. You don't owe anyone your attention unless they are your dependent, at which point you absolutely do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And one thing I think we could do a lot better as a culture is understand that every person gets to decide under what terms they will be in relationship with other people. And that anytime people are in relationship, that does represent a negotiation of trying to find the common ground in the ways that people relate to one another. But if you would use a term like estranged to describe your mother, there's some stuff there. And so I would say one of the signs that you are ready to re-engage would be that you feel comfortable establishing guidelines and boundaries for how that contact would occur, that you feel confident and comfortable reducing contact or increasing the amount of boundary in the event that your wishes are not honored. Um, And to me, that would be a really critical first step to avoid what? You being harmed further. You to avoid being traumatized. And frankly, when we engage with people before we're ready out of a sense of obligation, our attempts to protect ourselves can end up hurting the other person as well. So you'll hear me talk a lot on this program about the importance of boundaries, on doing our own work, on making space for grief, on uh, processing traumatic experiences. And that's so our feelings end up working for our goals and not against them. Our feelings can't be wrong, by the way. Our feelings are never, ever, ever wrong. But if we don't have a good relationship with our feelings, they can certainly lead us to behaviors and feelings that go against our own interests and goals, the things we want to do in life. And so um, to me, I, I think the clearest sign I can think of 
is a relative ease with knowing what the boundaries would look like for re-engaging and you feeling like you're in a place where you can communicate those things and not get steamrolled. Uh, no matter what, take care of yourself. Just take care of yourself. Um, take ownership of your feelings. Don't take ownership for your mom's feelings or experiences. Uh, those are your mother's responsibility. Speaking of boundaries and taking care of yourself, let's take a question about work-life balance. Snake Man Jake, very cool handle, has commented during this live record uh, the following. Mike, how should someone who hates the concept of trading time in their life for monetary compensation survive in our capitalist society? I'm tired of working 40 hours a week and never having time. I never have enough time for my passion, my family, etc. all because I have to work every day to survive. I do not have a good answer for this question that wouldn't make me a total hypocrite. Hmm. So I just want to start there because I immediately started thinking of things and every single example that was coming to my mind was just enormous privilege, just incredible privilege. I used to work in an office environment and I decided and I worked really hard. And that, that's I'm, I'm, I'm going to put the scare quotes down. I really did work very hard to move into a career where... Um, I made media I wanted to make on the terms I wanted to make it. But I was able to do that largely because I'm a abled white man. Like, it, it is statistically easier for me to get a book contract than people who aren't white men. Uh, my uh, experience in the corporate world means I know a lot of practices and language around um, business vernacular and business interaction that make people who can fund things feel comfortable. Uh, and so there's a degree of, of, of class and economic privilege there, right? So my first instinct, which I'm so glad I caught of like, well, go make your own destiny. Like that story I think is put forward by our capitalist system to make people feel like we have more freedom on mass than we actually do. Exceptions like me who were able to make a living doing something of our own choosing are used as a cudgel to describe everyone else as lazy. So I don't want to participate in that. What we need is worker protections and worker rights. What we need is a vast, well-funded social safety net. We need people to have access to housing, and food and health care independent of their working status. Because if workers have those things, it changes the incentive structures in an economy so that things aren't so exploitive. What I hear you articulating so well is the degree of labor exploitation that happens in the United States and around the world. And it makes me very sad. And I don't know that we can just make little personal actions. Like you could basically work two jobs for a while and build a way into the point where you're self-employed and doing your own thing. Uh, it comes with some additional risks and it's exhausting. I mean, I, I barely made it myself. Uh, but I think what really needs to happen is, uh, forgive me, but a fundamental reordering of human society 
that is more focused on the amount of resources we have when compared to what is necessary to give people the essentials of life and less focused on quarterly margins in the stock market. What I'm hearing your life play out as is a predictable outcome for the set of incentives that undergird the American economy. Where possible, set boundaries. And also, I mean, this is what collective action and organizing are about. We can make things better by working together. Mike? Oh, like, obviously it's not immediately apparent. I'm really excited about the Amazon unionization drive happening in the South right now. Those Mm. kinds of things help. Matthew on Instagram at MKLockwood7 asks, if a reasonably lightweight contraption of wings existed, would it be feasible for a human to be buff enough to make themselves (laughs) fly like a bird? Or is this just completely outside the rules of physics? Oh, boy, this is a great question. This is a fantastic question. Um, There are human-powered flight devices already. They're not bird-like. So basically, one of the most energy-efficient means of transportation we have in the world is a bicycle. Like a human on a bicycle, in terms of a a given amount of energy input in the system compared to distance traveled, uh, wind factored also time, bicycles are remarkably efficient. And so I have seen at least once an ultralight pedal-powered aircraft that did fly at very low altitudes over water. So it is possible to use human power to create lift. Uh, and I would say, on the contrary, something that you flap with your arms, um, the way birds are able to fly is because of more than just having wings. They have a lot of physiological adaptations suited toward flight. Number one, uh, there's a reason when we eat poultry, we like the breast meat or the chest. The, that's where a lot of the flapping power in a bird comes from, right? So our chests compared to bird chests are very underdeveloped. Uh, They also have very lightweight, hollow bones, um, and that makes their bodies way less per unit of volume, which also supports that large musculature and those wings to support flight. So even if we had very, very lightweight wings that were structurally rigid, I don't think you can create, and people have tried a lot, (laughs) lift force using arm power. It really does help Uh, to get the legs involved and then some degree of complex machinery that imparts mechanical advantage. Uh, It, gosh, I don't know if you, you might be able to do a crank based rotary mechanism that is arm driven, but it would in no way be a flapping motion. And the reason it would probably work better is it would involve much more. Uh, shoulder and back action in its operation than just uh, a flapping motion. So you basically like a an arm-powered, ultra-lightweight aircraft, potentially, although, again, weather conditions for the pedal-powered ones have to be phenomenal. They can't fly very long. They really can't climb at all. Um, but every time you say people can't do something, they do it. 
So I, I abs one thing I'm also pretty sure of is I'm like, there's no way it's not possible 60 years from now somebody's gonna pull it off and then I'll be used as one of those quotes to show how hard it is to predict the future. So I would say almost certainly no, but not absolutely. Mike. Well, actually, victory. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Better illustrates how deeply I read about random stuff all the time. Mike, I really feel like you're going to try this. I mean, as you were telling, you were were constructing it in your mind. I was that this was being built. You've got the blueprint. Victory and I started getting worried because I was thinking about wind resistance, and I was like, "You would it would need to be recumbent, probably." Like I can make a model of this. He's if like, I just, he are just too gets heavy, up but if you and leaves. High and went down <laughs> over water. You wouldn't need wheels. You need to launch ramp. Oh my which would be good less, god! No axle, less weight. Like oh yeah, I was definitely. Yeah, because I, mechanical engineering implications. <laughs> Truly, Grace. at first it was like it was like no 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 birds. They have light bones. They can't. Well, well. <laughs> <laughs> Victor and I just looked at each other. We were like, okay, we know know what this man is thinking. Grace, Um, were you there the other day when I asked Mike, I don't even remember what I asked. I asked him a question and I was like, you can say yes or no. And he was like, you're tormenting me. (laughs) And then he couldn't do it. He gave me a 10 minute fully detailed explanation, which was really helpful. (laughs) Oh my good gosh. There's so much nuance between yes and no. It's so true. It is so true. And that's the space you live. (laughs) So much nuance between yes and no is a a t-shirt. Stephanie Tate in the comments said, Mike is going to enter one of those Red Bull flying contests. (laughs) Isn't he? <laughs> so many people have comments about this. Mike Clemens said you'd need thunder thighs to helicopter pedal yourself across any decent distance. That's true. You got <laughs> Thoughts of that is... thighs save lives. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that really got me. Okay. Um, this might be our last question for the night. So I'm okay. choosing from our private discord again, just a little plug right here. If you'd like to be on that private discord, just go to cozyrobots.com. And by the way, there are several hundred of you yes. who are already patrons of the show and not on the discord. You are missing out on something that is already there for you. So much really fun, encourage y'all. you to link your Patreon and discord accounts. Mike plays Valheim sometimes, and he builds really awesome structures. We okay. all play Valheim. We've got a Valheim server. There's a bunch of us on there. It and is, I build the least impressive structures on it. It is. It's pretty wild. All right. Here is pro- probably the final question of the night. Okay. Butter dog on the Cozy Robert. Ro- wow. <laughs> Cozy Robert. Robert. <laughs> Uh, Butter dog on the Cozy Rubber Show. <laughs> Ass. 
Sorry, y'all, we're getting silly. (laughs) I've always wondered about this. What exactly, oh, this is a big one. What exactly is consciousness and how does it occur? (laughs) Yes or no. (laughs) You've You've got like a couple of minutes. I can imagine how artificial intelligence could get more and more advanced over time, but that's still just a computer doing more and more advanced calculations. At what point does an advanced intelligence become conscious? I don't believe in a metaphysical soul anymore but is it is still intuitively feels like there's a me that separates from the elect electrical pulses in my brain sorry oh, yeah sorry about that mike well, I threw you the big one. for the last question i'm Five glad minutes. we have a couple of minutes um <laughs> questions of consciousness are hard because we don't have a precise definition for what consciousness is because we don't understand consciousness all that well except experientially we all like kind of know so i like to think about the difference between sentience and consciousness and that would impact my answer because i think there's lots of things that are conscious conscious in my understanding the most useful definitions i've seen is simply the ability for some entity to build a model of reality and then respond to it right so a rock in some way responds to, re- to reality, right? If you heat a rock up, it melts. But there's no model there. That's just a direct interaction. But uh, physicist Michio Kaiku says a thermostat is conscious because it builds a little model of reality, the temperature. And it can respond to that model. When the temperature gets too high, uh, a thermostat can turn on the air conditioning. Now, it doesn't know what air conditioning is. But it knows the temperature goes down, and then when the temperature gets low enough, what? It turns the air conditioning back off. That's consciousness at a very basic level. In that understanding, a much more sophisticated consciousness would be a plant. Plants know all kinds of things about the world. They know the direction of the sun. They know the humidity. They know how much CO2 there is in the air. They know where the nutrients are and moisture are in the soil. They even know when other plants are being attacked and eaten because those plants release distressed chemicals that those plants can smell and respond to, even change their own chemistry. Plants can make themselves more bitter, for example, if there's too much grazing going on. So plants are aware, they have a limited model of the world in this feedback loop. I become aware of the environment, I make changes, that changes the environment, which causes me to change my awareness of the environment. And so the loop goes, right? And so in that understanding, consciousness is just more and more loops. So a bug has more loops in their consciousness because they know like where they are in the world. They move in ways plants don't. Now, plants can stretch, but they can't physically generally move from location to location. So bugs need to know where the food is. Where are other bugs that I can make more bugs with? Where might the predators be that could eat me? You get even more sophisticated. You get to animals that have a social consciousness. And social animals have to be aware of the models and loops of reality that are happening in each other's heads. Wolves need to know what other wolves think about them and what other wolves think about each other. Wow. So what is sentience? Sentience is that next level of consciousness where a consciousness becomes aware of itself. We don't believe that plants are aware plants are a thing, even their own experience. Plants aren't aware they're having an experience, but somewhere... That happens, you know. 
Some, if not all, dogs appear to be sentient. Dolphins do seem to be sentient. Most, an overwhelming majority of chimpanzees appear to be sentient, aware of their own consciousness. So by that understanding to me, well, gosh, there's a lot of digital consciousnesses already. Why? They have models of the world and they respond to them. The autopilot in a jet airplane is a form of consciousness. It is not sentient, but it is a consciousness. And so you could imagine we we get to the point where there are enough loops, enough sophistication, enough sets of recurring feedback loops in a digital entity where one of these loops became aware there was a loop. And in my mind, at that point, you have sentience. Now, I don't know exactly and programmatically how we would get there, but I do believe that it is possible. And I actually think sentience is less of a lift for a digital consciousness than the kind of generalized intelligence you see in the animal kingdom. I think we could possibly get to a point in the not terribly distant future, I don't know if that's two years or 200 or 2,000, where you know Google-scale machines have some awareness that they exist, but they don't have the same cognitive flexibility you see in the animal kingdom. They remain rather specialized in the application of their considerable processing gifts. Mike, that was amazing. And <laughs> you, Grace. I try to not when I answer you timed like, that it was perfectly. Amazing. I get like really <laughs> self-conscious. Wait, when I when I said Mike and then you waited. No, you said that Mike, was... that was great. And I was like, oh, okay. Well oh. <laughs> <laughs> don't forget to smile. Don't forget um... to smile. As always. This show is brought to you by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank each and every cozy robot for making this show possible. Our producers are Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. Music is by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. Production support by Amy Hill. Social media management, Grace Vaughn. Design by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield. Set design by Jesse Lane. Interiors, wardrobe stylist and craft services, Jenny McCarg. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. And I can't wait to see everyone next week. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye.